Hello and welcome to this Endo Life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an Endo Warrior and Endo Health Coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them i don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU which is buonline.co.uk and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally, their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is 
built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and Peerage support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. Hi, all. So I'm on my phone again because we have just arrived in a sort of temporary stopover Airbnb as we are traveling between French departments. I think that's kind of what they call the areas. So we're just outside Lyon um, for a couple of days before we go to the Dordogne. I am recording on my phone because this isn't a great setup to do, like, put my mic. There's not really much room. So I apologize for the audio. I'm really, really excited about today's episode. And I I honestly think that this could be a series of discussions because, as you'll see, there's just so much to talk about. And even for me as a practitioner who works with people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and muscle activation syndrome, SIBO, endometriosis, there is just still so much to learn and there's still so much research to be done. So this is really just dipping our toes into um, the links and the connections, but I hope that you find it just as interesting as I did. But today I'm talking to Dr. Linda Bluestein, who is a board-certified anesthesiologist integrative pain medicine physician and former ballet dancer who specializes in coaching and educating dancers and other athletes and individuals at increased risk of hypermobility disorders. And Dr. Linda's own experience with hypermobility Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome eventually led her down a career path change that has seen her help countless others to live well with hypermobility and basically avoid chronic pain development. You'll hear that that's like a really big area of Dr. Linda's work. Um, She is widely published. She's considered an expert on hypermobility disorders, as you'll be able to tell from this conversation, and she's lectured internationally. 
In this episode, Dr. Linda and I sit down to discuss the link between hypermobility spectrum disorders, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, muscle activation syndrome, and endometriosis. So here's a recap of what we cover. We talk about what we mean by generalized hypermobility, hypermobility spectrum disorders, and hypermobility EDS, and how they differ. We talk about the signs and symptoms of these conditions, the link between hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and menstrual disorders, bladder dysfunction, and pelvic pain, and Dr. Linda's approach to managing these problems. We talk about what mast cell activation syndrome is, how it's associated with hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and how it may be a driver behind Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and endometriosis. We also talk about, very briefly, the link between SIBO and hypermobility Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and connective tissue disorders. And then finally, we talk about Dr. Linda's key strategies for managing symptomatic hypermobility and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So there's a lot in this discussion and I think it's just, there's there's so much to explore. So I hope that it um, kind of maybe gives you a first for more if you recognize the symptoms. And I see so many people within my community with these conditions so um fingers crossed it reaches some of you out there who are also struggling with the same all right let's get to it for anyone who isn't familiar um if you could just you know tell us about yourself introduce yourself and uh, the amazing work that you do in the world oh well thank you so much for that Kind introduction. I um, my name is Dr. Linda Bluestein, and I am a anesthesiologist. And I went into medicine though really as like a Plan B. I really wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. And um, when that didn't pan out, though, I I decided to go into medicine. I love science, and really had a a great career in as an anesthesiologist in the operating room. Really enjoyed doing that. Um, but then came a time when my own health conditions, you know, really started to pile on and catch up to me. And so I needed to make a career pivot and um, ended up, you know, really diving into hypermobility and associated conditions. I wasn't diagnosed with hypermobile EDS until I was in my 40s, <laughs> although I had had lifelong symptoms that I that I now can look back and say, oh yes, all of that was related. Um, but of course, awareness has grown. Uh, of course, with you know, with the World Wide Web, um, you know, everybody's able to access so many more things that they couldn't access before. And um, there's only a limited amount of time in medical school, so a lot of the doctors that I went to, they would tell me, oh my gosh, you are so bendy. You're so hypermobile. This Mm -hmm. joint's hypermobile, you know, but they, but nobody ever implied or suggested that that might mean something. Even years later, when I was having a lot of problems with pain, nobody said, oh, I wonder if these things could be related. So I really have been spending the last, mm, I guess, really five years now of my life really trying to help as many people as possible who may be somewhere on the hypermobility spectrum. And even if they're completely asymptomatic, just helping them to understand how to work with their body better so that they can avoid injury and have the best possible chance of having a life without chronic pain. Because once you get chronic pain, it's a lot harder to treat. Mm. So I'm really trying to um, catch people early on in the process and be able to prevent some of the physical and emotional sequelae that can come from these conditions. 
Absolutely. And I think the work that you're doing is so important. I, I mean, I've seen a paper that says that, um, I can't remember the percentage, but so many patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, hypermobility symptoms are kind of dismissed and prescribed antidepressants and kind of told, you know, it's all of these other things other than what it actually is. Um, and having endometriosis myself and, um, working with so many people with endometriosis, it's the same issue. You know, we're, we're told for decades that there isn't anything wrong with us or it's, you know, or just no one really thinking it's an issue. Um, right. so I completely understand you know, my, my way into this work was having endometriosis and it sounds like your way into this work was having <laughs> Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So, um, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> we share a similar story there. Um, and, and complete tangent, but obviously I know that you work with dancers. So was the, was it an issue for you having hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome as a dancer when you were younger? It was from the standpoint that I started getting injuries at a mm. pretty young age. And that's that's really when I realized that I needed to come up with a plan B because I already was having a lot of problems with, with injuries. And, you know, I also knew later looking back, I was not the bendiest person in the room. I, I, I was thinking of a friend of mine in college. I chose my college because of their dance program. They had an amazing, amazing dance program. And there was someone who uh, I took class with all the time. She was incredibly, incredibly bendy. I mean, she was just like, you know, not just Gumby, but she was like more like Raggedy Ann that she just really <laughs> lacked um, strength. And she yeah. really had difficulty um, as uh, a lot of the people that, that I speak with now, I'm starting to understand more the language that they use. And they talk about organizing the body and that if you're a dancer or if you are somebody who, you know, is using your body a lot, you're a circus performer, you're a gymnast, um, ice skater, you know, you have to be able to position your body in a way such that you can do then the complex maneuvers that are required. And if you can't organize your body and get things lined up correctly and be able to use your body with the proper neuromuscular patterns, you know, that can make something like dance very challenging. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, uh, if they go to a studio that doesn't necessarily really pay attention to technique and they may look and see, oh my gosh, this dancer has these gorgeous lines, well, okay, maybe you have a little bit of knee hyperextension and maybe you have, you know, really flexible feet and high arches and things like that. And maybe you have a lot of external rotation of your hips. If it's classical ballet, those are the things that people look for and a flexible back and that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that you have good core strength. That doesn't mean that you have, you know, the ability to have good proprioception and things like that. And all of those factor into things like injury risk and the ability to um, use your body at a really, really high level, like was required. Okay. That's so interesting. I mean, I don't know if this is just a flippant statement that isn't necessarily true, but, um, I am on a waiting list to be uh, checked for hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, but the physio who pointed it out to me, cause I was talking about constant knee pain ever since I was young. And she was like, well, do you, do you have a history of hypermobility in your family? I was like, I don't think so. Like, my nan was in the Royal Ballet and she was like, oh, <laughs> you don't get into the Royal Ballet without hypermobility. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, um, 
you, you might help answer some of my questions because I'm not, I'm very, very stiff. I wouldn't say I'm bendy in any way, but um, we can, we can get to that because it's something that I wanted to ask about the symptoms, but you, you mentioned in your opening, like the hypermobility spectrum. So what I was, this is a podcast about endometriosis, but um, you know, my listeners are getting more and more aware of hypermobility and hypermobility EDS. So could you, you know, introduce us to the concept of the hypermobility spectrum and kind of what's hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, what's kind of the difference between them? Sure. So hypermobility by itself simply means that a joint or a group of joints has greater than expected range of motion. And that's all that it means. So it's, if you, you can have a hypermobile um, knee, hypermobile elbow, and that just means that it bends farther than it's supposed to. So like in the example of the knee, we often call that uh, back knee um, or uh, that's, you know, something that dancers often see because it makes for a very nice aesthetic line. But it's also important to know that you can have hypermobility and have no problems whatsoever, be completely asymptomatic. Now, the, the question is, are you asymptomatic? You don't have any problems and you're going to stay that way? Mm. Or are you asymptomatic? And eventually down the road, are you going to develop problems? And we don't really know the answer to that question. Um, we think that there are people who have some hypermobility and, and never develop problems, but it's really, you know, it's, it's hard to get big enough studies to really look at those kinds of things. So, so there's some people that have hypermobility and no problems, no symptoms whatsoever. And then there's people that have the combination of things that are suggestive of a connective tissue disorder. So the things that are suggestive of a connective tissue disorder include um, the joint hypermobility or joint laxity. Um, so joints that are looser than normal, that have more range of motion than normal, have difficulty staying in proper alignment, that kind of thing. So that's one part. The second part is changes in the skin. So they might have um, stretchier than normal skin. So you can kind of like pull the skin on the side of your neck and you can see how stretchy that is. You can pull the skin at your wrist and see how stretchy that is. Um, they have um, abnormal scarring. So instead of developing a nice uh, thin scar after you've had surgery or an injury or something, the scar will be um, kind of wider. And the different types of connective tissue disorders present differently. But this triad of three things is really what we're looking for to know if someone falls more into the group of connective tissue disorders or if they're more into um, a middle category, which I'll explain in a second. The third aspect is uh, weak tissues. So maybe you have um, what's called pelvic organ prolapse. So you have um, organs that fall, your, your pelvic organs are supposed to stay in your pelvis. Mm -hmm. um, but if people have pelvic organs that that um, prolapse, so you might have a rectocele or a cystocele, um, you have organs that are they're falling down basically but between your legs. Now, if that happens after pregnancy, that is a much different significance than if it happens before pregnancy. Um, it's more, much more understandable if it happens after pregnancy. So if you if you have that something like that and it happened without a pregnancy, then that's very significant. Um, other things that we might see are like multiple or recurrent abdominal hernias. Mm. Um, you might see skin that like tears really easily and things like that. So that, that triad of three things. So we see the joints, the skin, and the tissues being affected. If we see that triad of three things, 
then we tend to think more, okay, does this person have a connective tissue disorder of which the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are the most common type? And there's actually 14 different subtypes of the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes with the hypermobile type being the most common. If a person has symptomatic hypermobility, meaning that they're hypermobile and they have symptoms that are likely attributable to that hypermobility, but they don't fall into any of the buckets of um, any of the connective tissue disorders that we might think of or other explanations for their hypermobility, then, and they don't fall into the category of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, then now they go into the category of hypermobility spectrum disorders. Mm. And this is a concept that was introduced in 2017 by the International Consortium on EDS and um, Related Disorders. And they said, well, they made the criteria much more strict for hypermobile EDS, realizing that they were going to be um, then um, leaving some people out. They said, well, we need a, another category for the people who don't fit in that category of hypermobile EDS or have another explanation for their symptomatic hypermobility. And so that's what is hypermobility spectrum disorders. Right. Okay. So, and I mean, I've seen the criteria and it, it is quite strict for um, hypermobile EDS. So we're looking for, I mean, what would you see in the people who are falling under like hypermobile hypermobility spectrum disorders? Yeah. Um, you know, because I have done a couple of different lectures and they talk about like, you know, GI symptoms and dysautonomia symptoms, which, you know, we're going to get into the co-conditions. But would you see some unusual symptoms that you wouldn't expect to see? So this that's a really great point, because those other things that we see, we see lots of gastrointestinal problems. That's extremely, extremely common. We see lots of autonomic dysfunction, so that where the autonomic nervous system doesn't work properly. We see a lot of um, different types of, uh, you know, pains, aches and pains in all different parts of the body. We see muscle weakness. We see a lot of different things. But what they what they decided when they were looking at these um, the different categories, they decided to leave out completely things like dysautonomia gastrointestinal problems, mast cell activation syndrome, these comorbidities, because then it really gets much, much more confusing. And they're, and they're trying to really focus in more on what is attributable to the hypermobility. Right, right. Directly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very confusing. And, um, there's, it's really hard to keep things accurate and also, understandable sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I find that for me as well, like working with clients and obviously I'm not a doctor, so I'm just trying to give them the information that's out there. Um, and I, I do have the criteria cause it's provided with me in my training. And so I get them to look at it, but it's just so it's, it's, it's difficult because people can have all of the signs of you know, the other conditions, the POTS and the, the MCAS and the SIBO. And, and then yes. it's like, well, but they're also, you know, like me, I'm, I'm really, really stiff, but I have such joint pain. Um, and I, I don't, so it's, I mean, can the symptoms be subtle? I'm assuming that this is where it would come on the spectrum. And also, um, 
at least from, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Guggenheim. I think I'm saying oh, that yes. name, right. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Very familiar. She, I did one of her uh, lectures and she was talking about that there's a, a lifespan of hypermobile EDS. And that kind of in its like fourth stage is when you see like a lot of chronic pain and joint stiffness. So, so the older patients may not present as hypermobile. Um, and I'm just curious on, as to what your thoughts are on that. Um, do you tend to see like, is it obvious that someone is hypermobile? Is it, you know, or is it, can it be subtle? Oh, it's definitely not obvious. Definitely not. So, so this is part of why um, doctors Hakeem and Graham developed something called the five point questionnaire in 2003. And the Biden score is what's used most commonly to assess for joint hypermobility. But the problem with the Biden score, well, there's a number of problems with the Biden <laughs> score, but um, we, we don't really have probably enough time to go into the details on that, but it, the problem is absolutely, as you mentioned, by the time somebody starts developing symptoms, more severe symptoms, oftentimes they no longer are hypermobile like they were when they were younger. So Mm -hmm. I love the five point questionnaire. It is part of my screening for all of my patients. Um, they it's, it's on the forms that they fill out before they have their first visit. Um, do we have time that I could go through with the five questions? I would love to, because this is okay. new to me. I didn't know about oh. this. Oh, this is very, very important. So this has been validated in you know many, many different languages. It's been tested internationally. It's It has been, um, you know, this is not me just saying, hey, they came up with this great thing. Doctors mm-hmm. Akeem and Graham are the grandfathers of hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos, I mean, they they did all of the original groundbreaking, I shouldn't say original, because like Dr. Byton, of course, came up with the Byton score, and doctors Ehlers and Danlos were dermatologists that they that first came up with describing Ehlers-Danlos. But Dr. Sakim and Graham are really the modern ones who really got this brought to people's attention. And they're just amazing human beings who really have just done so much for the, for the space and for the world and for the people who have these conditions. And these are the five questions. So the first two questions are actually straight from the Biden score, but they ask, can you now, or could you ever place your hands flat on the floor without bending your knees? So when you get asked that for the Biden score, you only get credit if you can do it at that moment in time. So let's say you go in, it's a, it's a cold day. You, you, um, you know, you go running into your doctor's appointment and normally you can do it, but you can't do it that day because your hamstrings are tight and your, your body's cold and you know, you're not able to, to do it. You don't get that point. So mm-hmm. on the five point questionnaire, it's, can you now, or could you ever place your hands flat on the floor without bending your knees? That's the first question. The second question is, can you now, or could you ever bend your thumb to touch your forearm? Now that one's a little bit harder because unless you know the Biden score, or unless you know that you tried doing that at some point in time, a lot of people would be like, I don't know. I never tried that, you know? So that one's a little bit harder, but it's um, basically with these five questions, you want to add up the number of yes answers. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's how, that's how you do it. So for the third question, it's as a child, did you amuse your friends by contorting your body into strange shapes or could you do the splits? Next question, as a child or teenager, did your shoulder or kneecap dislocate on more than one occasion? And then the last question, do you consider yourself double jointed? And if you answer yes to two or more of those questions, 
it is believed to have in the range of 85% sensitivity and specificity. Specif- I can always, I always struggle on that I word. cannot say that <laughs> word either. But, I don't know yeah, why. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is very challenging. Um, so, so the positive predictive value of this test is not perfect. But again, if you are looking at this in combination with the other variables, it can be very, very useful. And a really, really super important thing to remember I feel like people, even people that I know that are in this space a lot, sometimes forget this. Both the Byton score and the five-point questionnaire, and if you're looking at like the lower limb assessment score or, you know, some of these other, the upper limit, you know, assessment score, there's all these different um, tools. Those are looking for hypermobility, just hypermobility. Those are not looking at EDS. And I see a lot of people getting that mixed up. So if you have more than two answers on the five-point questionnaire, that does not mean that you have EDS. Yeah. You know, and, and that's looking for, the five-point questionnaire is really looking at, do you have generalized joint hypermobility? Because another thing that the Inter- International Consortium did was they broke hypermobility down into four different types. So we have localized joint hypermobility, which means that you're hypermobile in, you know, like one or two joints and it might be bilateral. So maybe it's hips and knees and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have, uh, if you have peripheral joint hypermobility, that means you're hypermobile in your hands and your feet, but not in your larger joints. And then if you have generalized joint hypermobility, that means you have hypermobility in like five or more joints usually. And then if you have um, historical joint hypermobility. That means you were hypermobile in the past, but you're not anymore. Wow. Okay. There's so interesting, so much to it. Um, yes. and, and got, you know, no wonder people get confused. And I think yes. that doctors as well, like at least yes. in the UK, like general practitioners aren't necessarily fully, um, equipped to, to go into all the nuances of it. Um, especially with such short, you know, short appointments. So you're complete, you know, completely right. If you turn up and you're really stiff and it's a cold day <laughs> or you're at this point where, you know, you're, you're older now and you can't do those movements, then, um, yeah, of course. What do you, what do you do? Um, and I, ha- I have got those questions, but I didn't realize that was kind of what they were called. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's so, I always go back and forth on my on my um, issues, but I I don't I wasn't I don't think I was bendy as a child, but um, always always joint problems. Um, and would you something that I noticed with the Biden score, for example, is that they focus on like the knees, um, like you said, the um, wrist, the the thumb, the elbows. Um, what if someone had hypermobility like somewhere else, like their ankles or their their hips? Right. So, so that's why um, literally there are probably mm, maybe 20 different hypermobility testing methods. Right. Um, there's, you know, the Marshall test. There's the Carter and Wilkinson method. There's the University of Tokyo joint laxity test, mm. um, something called Winnie Davis the Sanchez scale, I'm probably mispronouncing that last one, but there are um, the Bulbina scale. There's a lot of different ones that, um, but for some reason, the Byton score, I mean, it, it does have some advantages. It's it's quick. Um, it's something that's very easy to learn and it has been validated in, in a number of studies. 
but it was designed as a research tool and it misses a lot of joints. It doesn't include all the joints. Of course, none of the tests are really going to include all of the joints. That would be impossible. That would take forever, right? Mm. To do that, to do that assessment. But, but the Vitan score does exclude some joints that are commonly injured. And so that's problematic. Like, like you said, it doesn't include the ankle. It doesn't include the shoulder. And those are joints that are quite commonly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a problem. So, so interesting. Okay. So, um, this is, um, what my listeners have been waiting for, I think, um, <laughs> from like the research and the lectures that I've watched. And as I said to you, I'm nowhere near an expert. This is something that I've been doing a lot of research in the past year, but it, it at least to me appears that there's a strong, uh, correlation between hypermobile EDS and menstrual and pelvic problems. So like, um, heavy menstrual bleeding, painful periods, pain during sex, uh, bladder issues like bladder dysfunction. Um, and there's like an estimation that six to 23% of people with hypermobile EDS also have endometriosis. So I wonder, is that the same for people who just have generalized joint hypermobility or is it just with hypermobile EDS? And are you familiar with this? Like, do you see this with your clients and could you tell us more about why, you know, why this happens? Why is hypermobile ADS causing so much pain in the pelvic region? So, so part of the problem when you go to actually study these things is that we have had so many changes in what we call nosology over the years. So the criteria for um, hypermobile EDS, you know, changed in 2017, but before that it was being applied using a couple of different types of um, scoring systems. And then some people that probably didn't even use a scoring system. And we had, we had numbered types of EDS. Then we've had different names. It's there, there has been a huge change in the way that we call things over time. And also with you know, when you look at different studies, they, they assess things in different ways. And of course, endometriosis, what marker are you using to look at that? Um, is it, if, if you look at the studies, are you, is it being su- basically suggested by history or are you only taking into account people that had surgery and had mm. evidence of endometriosis at surgery? So it becomes very, very hard to study. And in my opinion, the reason why is because it is much easier to establish a correlation between two rare things than than between things that are more common. So if you're trying to look, for example, at hypermobility and endometriosis, um, hypermobility is quite common, just hypermobility by itself. Endometriosis we know is quite common. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a lot harder. You're going to need greater numbers of people if you're going to look at a population of people who are hypermobile and a group of people that are not hypermobile, and then compare how much endometriosis is in one group and how much endometriosis is in the other group. Um, right, likewise, yeah. things like painful periods, painful intercourse, these are also things that are very common. And the data does suggest that those things especially are more common in people that have hypermobile EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorder. But like you said, we don't really know why. I think part of the reason why is because People who have um, uh, symptomatic hypermobility. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna use that so that we're not, you know, because it doesn't matter if they, for the standpoint of this conversation right now, do do the hypermobile EDS or do they have hypermobility spectrum disorder? We're just okay. gonna group everybody together under symptomatic hypermobility for the purposes okay. of this conversation. Okay, if you have symptomatic hypermobility, 
there is a very good chance that what is happening is in your joints as you're having some extra movement in your joints because your joints are lax, you are getting more nociceptive or painful input into your nervous system. So, you know, maybe you're, you're getting some like subluxations, which is like a partial dislocation. Maybe you're getting tendinopathies. Maybe you're getting little, you know, micro tears in your tendons and your ligaments and things like that. That input into your nervous system will actually cause your nervous system to become sensitized to pain. And there's a saying in the pain world, pain begets pain. Mm -hmm. So once that's what I'm saying, we, my goal is to prevent chronic pain. Once you start to get pain on a persistent basis, it it is a lot harder to treat and the nervous system um, starts to ramp up some of the neurotransmitters and some of the substances that help perpetuate that pain cycle. So once the pain starts, it's it's like it wants to be in this cycle of continuing that pain process. So it's not surprising then that someone who has symptomatic hypermobility, they may have more pain in their pelvis than somebody who doesn't have symptomatic hypermobility, even though if you were to examine them doing a diagnostic laparoscopy or um, ultrasound or something like that, they have identi- their pelvises look identical. They have identical from a functional standpoint, from a physical standpoint, not that you could actually study it that way, but you know, there, yeah. there, will, there will be a difference in those two people likely in the way that pain signals are processed. So the person with the symptomatic hypermobility is going to have more pain, even though there, there may or may not be a lot going on there in the pelvis. Um, when it comes to, in, to endometriosis, you know, it's it's a lot harder to to study that because again, it depends on what criteria you're using, and um, it's not clear if having hypermobile EDS or hypermobile spectrum disorder you know increases your risk. But we do know, and, I, and I'm jumping ahead, sorry, but we know that those things increase your risk of having mast cell activation. Yeah, syndrome. that's where I was like, yeah. I was like. Next question, but I'm not going to jump in about it, but I'm so glad you've gone into this. Yeah, go please go ahead. So so, so we know that um, we're more likely to have aberrant mast cell activity, which that is very much correlated with endometriosis. So there's some, there's some fascinating data on endometriosis and what's going on with the mast cells. So mast cells, spelled M-A-S-T, I always find that pe- sometimes I get messages from from people and, and they're spelling it M A S S and mast oh, yeah. cells M A S T yes. <laughs> um, these are a type of cell in the body that have many many different functions, and you have to have mast cells to be alive, and you also have to have mast cells in order to fight off infection. They're a part of the immune system, and they play a lot of different roles in the immune system. So they help to uh, fight off infection. They will release different chemical mediators and they play a crucial role in in helping us like recover from infection and things like that. But there are times where they become like um, trigger happy and they react to things when they really uh, don't need to. And then they release their chemical mediators and they have hundreds and hundreds of chemical mediators that can have effects all throughout the body. So the confusing thing is these people will present with 
a really wide array of symptoms. And most doctors are trained on different diseases and illnesses as, as more kind of well-circumscribed things and not something that can be more systemic like that. So if we hear a person say, you know, I have these rashes and hives and, you know, allergic rhinitis and, and eczema, and I get dizzy when I stand up and I have pain in my joints. And, you know, the person, the doctor's going, oh my gosh, I, I don't know what this is mm-hmm. because, because normally we don't think of those things as being related and, and I have painful periods, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with all of this. Um, but, but we're now getting more and more evidence that these things are related. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, other than the painful periods, because I, I manage my endo really well, like you just described me to a T. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, MCAS yeah. is something that I see a lot in um, my clients. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. I don't know if I would have to watch the lecture back, um, if this is just Dr. Guggenheim's theory or if it is actually in the research. Um, but she was talking about how if it's in the research, then it's like a new kind of theory that potentially the kind of um, mechanism behind the joint laxicity is that the mast cells are like obviously, you know, trigger happy, they're firing out all of this histamine and all of these other chemical mediators. And that that is kind of creating this issue with the connective tissues. Um, So that maybe MCAS is kind of behind some of these problems. Does that ring a bell with you? Oh, oh, definitely. So, so the, the challenge is that, um, okay, so let's talk about phenotype versus genotype a second. Mm-hmm. The clinical picture that someone presents with is what's called the phenotype. So you and I could have very, very similar phenotype. We present with a very, very similar looking picture. We both have joint pain. We both have, you know, uh, you know, maybe rashes and hives and itching and some, and various different things. So let's say there's two people that present with a very, very similar phenotype. Well, they don't necessarily have the same genotype. We don't necessarily have the same underlying gene or group of genes that are causing the picture to look like that. It could be that in your case, you have hypermobile EDS and you have, you know, again, as we're learning more and more with genetics and, and you know, the Norris lab is doing an amazing job looking at the, at the, at the genes for the hypermobile type of EDS. And we should be getting some, you know, uh, exciting news from them and, and very, very uh, great discoveries. Um, but if we look at what's happening in the genotype, it's not always going to be the same. Some other people are not going to have any problem in their connective tissue genes, but mm. we really are believing now that what happens with some of those people is that when the mast cells get activated and they release their hundreds and hundreds of chemical mediators, some of which are called proteases, and they degrade connective tissue. 
So if you have your mast cells just constantly, constantly um, being activated and releasing these chemicals inside of the body, those chemicals can degrade connective tissue and can make it look like you have hypermobile EDS. Um, a, uh, one of my very, very brilliant colleagues and friend, uh, Dr. Lawrence Afrin wrote a paper, uh, I believe it was published a year ago or so in the American Journal of Genetics. And the title of the article is some cases of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome may be rooted in mast cell activation syndrome. And, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense when you really think about it. And especially when you consider that uh, this is not just my clinical observation, but the same, my colleagues have observed the same thing that younger generations are seem to be impacted more than older generations. So I have, I have patients where I'll see three or four generations and the grandpa's doing pretty good, not, not having right. too much trouble, but the, but it's the youngest ones that are having the most problems. Well, what's happened to our environment? We're exposed to a lot more plastics and chemicals and pesticides. And, you know, we're in these homes that are sealed a lot tighter. We're not spending time outside like our ancestors did. So we, there's a lot of um, evidence that that potentially that is playing a role as well, like toxicants. Um, and there's a theory about that toxicant induced loss of tolerance. Dr. Claudia Miller has published tons and tons of papers on this topic. And um, if, if people are like, oh, yeah, I'm one of those people who has chemical sensitivity, you know, definitely you'll want to check out Dr. Claudia Miller and her work. And it's it's really fascinating. And I believe, I, I think what she says makes perfectly good sense and fits in very nicely with the picture of mast cell activation syndrome and that this is what's happening to a lot of people. They just cannot tolerate all of these things that we have in our environment and other people, it doesn't phase them at all. But we do know that we are seeing, you know, an increase in chronic illness. And um, of course, COVID doesn't help with that either because activation of the immune system whether it's by infection or vaccine or any of those things um, can lead to, can lead to problems, but we need to coexist also with microorganisms. I mean, our gut is full of them. And you mentioned SIBO earlier, small mm -hmm. intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We need to be able to have um, bacteria in our intestines. That is the way that our bodies are the most healthy with a nice diverse gut microbiome. Um, but when people have slow transit time in their intestines, that's when they end up with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because they get bacteria, you know, growing in their small intestines that are not supposed to be there. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was actually going to ask you about that. I forgot to put that in my email to you, but, um, you know, from a SIBO perspective, because I am the endo belly coach, like I, I see endometriosis and I saw SIBO so much that I trained in it. So I kind of see people with the two, um, you know, we know that hypermobile EDS can slow down, uh, in you know, motility, slow down the migrating motor complex in the simple, not necessarily slow it down, but you can have like droopy bowels, right? So like the, the intestines are kind of floppy and the MMC can't put, you can't push things through. Is that the same if someone was like symptomatic hypermobile or just, they would generalize hypermobility? hypermobility would that still affect the gut or is it only in people who have the the connective tissue disorders that that would actually cause a problem with the motility does that make sense I feel like I butchered that right no that, no that that makes sense so you know the more if you have like say you know classical 
EDS or vascular EDS, you know, your, your clinical picture is going to be different than, than those that have hypermobile EDS. If you have hypermobile EDS, yes, then you can definitely have, like you said, you know, the droopy bowels and, and, and things like that. And I believe that we will in the future, you know, right now we have 14 different types. Um, you know, who knows, maybe we're going to have 20 types, 25 types. Is it, is it, is it going to end someplace as we, you know, genetics is just exploded, of course. And so will we be able to more accurately describe what's, what, what kind of a picture is expected in in a given person perhaps, but the things that, the thing that we also need to remember is that, um, we have the ability to think and what we think influences how our body functions. Um, we know that stress. Uh, physiologic stress, psychologic stress is one of the biggest activators of mast cells. Mm. So we know that if, and obviously we're living in very stressful times. Um, so that doesn't help either. So if people can get the right amount of information and say, okay, that, th- that, that could be more stressed knowing that stress influences these things. But I, but at the same time, I can also use that knowledge as power and say, okay, but then the flip is, the reverse is also true. If I can get a better handle on, on my stress and if I can activate more my parasympathetic nervous system, my rest, digest, and restore, restore system and have less activation of my sympathetic nervous system, my flight, fight, or freeze, then, then perhaps I can, um, you know, get myself into a space where I'm not activating my mast cells as much, and I'm actually going to improve how my how my body functions. So uh, there's a quote that I really really like that says, "Think how difficult physics would be if particles could think." <laughs> <laughs> so we have to remember in science that what we think affects how our body functions. And so it can be very, very difficult to, you know, to tease out some of these different things um, because we're all wired so differently. And then there's also differences in genetics in terms of how much pain we feel. So it's also possible that it's not, it's not like it's a single gene that causes you to have this picture or that picture, but it's a combination of genes. Maybe as when we, when we find out what one or it's probably going to be more than one gene is for the hypermobile EDS. Um, type, maybe people that also have a gene that predisposes them towards more inflammation or a gene that predisposes them towards more chronic pain, maybe those people, you know, are going to be much more aware of it. And maybe people who don't have those genes, maybe they could walk around with hypermobile EDS and really just not have as much problems. So um, genetics is something that's just, I think, I think that's another important thing to think about is that, you know, you're, your average primary care provider, they need to know about so many things. They need to know how to treat infection and injury and abdominal pain and chest pain and, you know, headache. And they need to know how to treat so many different things that I think it would be fabulous for them to know enough about hypermobility and associated conditions to be able to at least use your smile on the right path. But we also have to make it you know, easy for them to do so. And like mm-hmm. you said about, about not having time, we don't have time. We don't have time with our, with our uh, clinicians, with our healthcare providers. We need more time because a lot of these issues are so complex. They involve multiple different systems and you need time to build that rapport and that relationship. And, um, and, and, you know, our healthcare is so 
under duress and stress right now. Um, it's physician um, suicide is on the rise. I mean, it's just, it, I think a lot of people, you know, they get so angry with physicians and it's understandable, but we also have to understand that, you know, the dynamics of the healthcare system have really dramatically changed and it's the system that we need to improve and, and not just like, oh, no, no, we just need to fix the doctors. Trust me, I work with a lot of medical students. They start out so compassionate and empathetic and they want to do good in the world. And they are just amazing human beings. The ones that I work with are just incredible. Over time though, you get, you know, a lot happens and you get less and less time with your patient and you're, and you just get beaten down with regulations and administrators saying, no, you need to see 30 patients in a day. Can you imagine, mm -hmm. yeah. can you imagine trying to see 30 people with endometriosis? Oh no, no. <laughs> Free is enough to like push me right. to like my very limit. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I know, absolutely. There, there has to be a, um, a huge, huge change. And it's it's going to take time. I think that, like you said earlier on, I don't know if in just our conversation or, or in the recording, that we have more access to information now. So for the time being, you know, we have these podcasts like, I know doctors aren't a fan of it, but we do have Google um, and <laughs> we, and it is helping us to get the right diagnoses and say, look, you know, these are the things that are going on for me. So being an advocate for yourself at this time, I think is quite important. Um, Definitely. We can connect the dots that sometimes doctors are missing in a five or 10 minute appointment. Um, I would love to, like in, in the final bit of our conversation, just give people some more practical tips or an overview of, of what they can do. So obviously as an endo health coach, I have like a sort of several ways to address like pelvic pain from, you know, uh, lowering inflammation, managing histamine levels, pelvic floor physiotherapy, addressing adhesions, you know, nervous system regulation, all of those things. But I, I find that my clients with hypermobile EDS um, or who they have like the um, co-conditions that we talked about, like MCAS and, and SIBO and things like that, they tend to have a harder time minimizing this pain. Um, they can get there, but it is it takes longer. Um, and we often have to try different things before, you know, before we see a breakthrough. Um, do you find that there are specific strategies that help to manage like the pelvic or menstrual like associated problems that can occur within this community. So, so I love all of those tools that you've mentioned. I definitely refer people all the time for pelvic floor physical therapy. We talk a lot about nutrition. I often refer them to a nutritionist and um, I, for my podcast, Bendy Bodies podcast, um, I have a nutrition, uh, nutritionist registered dietitian nutritionist that we work with quite frequently. Um, her name is Kristen Koskin. And so I often refer people to her mm -hmm. um, and she, and she does great work with, with patients and clients. And um, I often will take an approach that I've, I've given an acronym uh, men's PMMS. And I don't know if you've heard, have you heard me talk about this before? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Okay. It's just a way to help myself remember the different parts. And then it's an iterative process. So I just go back through again and again, and just 
revisit, you know, um, okay, well, let's see, are there more steps that we can take here? Are there more steps we can take here? Mm-hmm. So basically, so basically what it stands for, the first M is for movement. Um, we need to move better before we move more. So it's getting movement patterns down. It's getting, um, you know, working on, on things like proprioception, working on uh, neuromuscular patterns. And um, because what happens with a lot of people is as they start to have more and more pain, they get more and more fearful of movement. They they develop kinesiophobia. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as we move less and less and less, what happens is our parasympathetic nervous system becomes less active and we have more activity or sympathetic nervous system. So that does not help us because that kind of shuts down the gut that makes us more anxious. And so movement is hugely, hugely helpful. And of course, if we want to move, we have to move. So mm-hmm. movement is what's going to allow us to be able to continue to move. So movement is, is crucially important. So that's the first letter. The second letter is E for education. Um, I believe that it's crucially important for people to understand neuroscience education, at least enough so that they understand, oh, this is why this is happening in my body. Understanding how the nervous system becomes sensitized, for example, understanding why, what we think matters and, 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 you know, really taking ownership and, um, feeling empowered over your body. And, and also there are things that people sometimes do, like they get angry at their body parts. And, and I feel that that is not helpful either because, you know, you want to have a positive relationship with your body. So, um, so education is very valuable. Nutrition, there's a lot of different things that people can do nutrition-wise that can improve their symptoms. Um, uh, and S, then the, the first S stands for sleep. If you're not sleeping well, if you're not getting good quality sleep, good quantity sleep, then you're not going to be able to um, have good control over your pain and your other symptoms. So that's very important. So we do a lot of different things to work on sleep. The P stands for psychosocial. Um, so uh, do you have supportive people in your in your life, which may or may not be your family or your you know immediate people around you, but finding those supportive people? Um, do you have a safe space that you can that you can talk to somebody? I believe that everybody who has these conditions and is going through life, everybody deserves to have a counselor or have somebody that they can talk to. Yeah. Um, and then the next M stands for modality. So it might be acupuncture, acupressure, um, a variety of different uh, techniques that we can use for um, improving, you know, uh, low level laser, red light laser. There's a bunch of different things in the modalities category that we can try the uh, let's see PMMS. And then that next M stands for medications. Um, notice that I put that M last. There's three mm. M's, but I put medications last because although medications do have a role, it's very important not to get over reliant on medications. And and when I say that, what I mean really is, you know, you go in to see your PCP and you have seven minutes for the visit. Part of why you know you often will walk out with a prescription for a medication and not really anything else is because you know this education and all of these other things takes a considerable amount of time. So as you said, I mean, I often will see three people in a day or two people in a day because it's, it's a lot of time talking. I can only talk for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the notes it, and the prep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a very, very long process. So, you know, most people cannot do that in a standard type practice. 
Um, so, so that, that's medications. And then the last S is supplements. And, you know, I, I purposefully put nutrition before supplements and I put sleep before supplements mm-hmm. because supplements can be used, you know, as an, as an add-on for your nutrition, but really we want to be getting as many of our nutrients from our food as possible. So this is kind of the way that I, I'll just go back through mentally, like, okay, let's see, which of these can we go back to? and and readdress to add something in and tweak your your um, comprehensive treatment plan so that we can you know basically what i'm looking for is optimizing function i i'm not big on asking for pain numbers i feel that pain numbers are very very um, misleading Mm -hmm. and instead what i'm looking for is how well are you functioning in life are you able to do what you want to do and I try to really focus on goals, which are going to be very different for each person. But what for you, what specifically means a lot to you? And also, you know, working together on that goal, I can help you determine like what's a re- what's a very reasonable goal that is, you know, specific. It's a smart goal, right? Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and trackable. Mm-hmm. Um rather than just, you know, kind of a vague goal. And and I think that that can really help with a lot of people to really work in that kind of a capacity. And I view us as partners, you know, I really view it as, as we're, we're working on this together and, you know, I'm not, I'm not in charge. You're in charge of your own body. So you're really in charge, but, but let's walk through this path together to get you in a place where, you know, you can actually get back to enjoying your life more. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like we've trained like on the same course because that's like <laughs> it's so it's such a coaching approach. Um and you know, it's a partnership, right? It's it's collaborative. Um and just all of the touch points are almost identical to what I do, which is um which is, you know, great reassuring for me. Um <laughs> and I mean, so from a perspective of whether someone is um, I mean, obviously, usually anyone who's listening will have endometriosis, but just say someone else who listens, who just has um, hypermobile EDS and doesn't have endo. So it kind of sounds like whether you have menstrual problems or endo with your hypermobile EDS or your symptomatic um, hypermobility, the approach is kind of the same. Like you're checking in with these foundations. Are you sleeping? You know, are you eating well? What's your social support? Like all of you know, all of these things, these foundations are what's going to make the difference really kind of regardless of the, the issue. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. It's, I I try to get them to kind of, okay, let's focus on what are your most bothersome symptoms at this point in time. And that will help to guide the treatment strategy. But, Mm -hmm. but you're saying is, is very true that it's, there's a lot of similarities regardless of which symptoms that you you present with, because for example, if you have mast cell activation syndrome, that's flaring up your endometriosis versus if you have mast cell activation syndrome, that's caused symptoms elsewhere. I'm probably going to take a fairly similar approach to that. And of course, you know, ultimately a person could end up having surgery or something like that for their endometriosis. But I do try to help people avoid surgery if they possibly can, because I just so often see people that have had surgery and it not improved their problems. And, you know, of course, lots of the time that that's what the person needs, mm-hmm. but, um, you can always have surgery later. You can't undo it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, there's so many complications with adhesions developing, 
Um, And people thinking, oh, you know, they say, well, my surgery hasn't worked. I'm in so much pain. And then it's like, well, (laughs) we find that they're now riddled with adhesions. We get someone to to feel assess them. And there's normally adhesions there. And especially in people who do have a connective tissue disorder, that can be quite significant as well, like the scarring that can develop after that. Right. And and a a lot of times the surgery, if the surgery doesn't really address the underlying problem, Mm-hmm. then then the result is not going to be as good. So, you know, it's it's just really important. And, and you know, your average orthopedic surgeon, I mean, they under, they may know a little bit about hypermobility, but but they they're they're really very um as they should be very laser focused and they're going to focus in on what's going on. They they're not necessarily going to do a thorough assessment to figure out why that's happening. Mm. Um and so and so that's where you know again, with any like orthopedic problem, I, I want my patients to be really working hard on physical therapy. First, I had a, as an anesthesiologist, I was pre oping a patient once and she was having going to have shoulder surgery. And I was talking to her and she said, well, my doctor gave me the choice of either physical therapy or surgery. And I don't have time to do physical therapy. So I chose surgery. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, the surgeon would have killed me if I had said, you know, you really, should try the physical therapy first. Cause if you can, if you can improve something non-surgically, you know, cause like you said, with adhesions and other things, mm-hmm. once you've had something operated on, it's, you know, it's, it's, that that's there. It's, it's, it's never, it's never going to go back to its, you know, more native state. So we want to address as many root causes as possible and really yeah. work on, on that approach. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Linda, I would love to continue talking to you forever. I feel like <laughs> you there's so much that um just so interesting that I'm learning from you. Um and I just I think your work is fascinating. So thank you for coming on and and sharing some of it with us. Where can people find you? So probably the best place is my website www hypermobilitymd.com. And from there, they can, you know, get access to the podcast, um, the Bendy Bodies with Hypermobility MD podcast, and, um, and, and the other, get more information about, about a lot of the other things that, that I do. But I also am very active on social media. And I would say I'm probably most active on Instagram, but I'm on Instagram at hypermobilitymd or at Bendy underscore bodies. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and a bunch of other places. But if you go to the website, then you can kind of get the, you know, the correct links for those other social media platforms and things. That's great. I'll, I'll put those links in the, in the show notes as well so they can get to like your Instagram and things directly. Um, do you have a newsletter? I do. Um, I don't. I don't. If you if you subscribe. If you quote unquote subscribe, you will not be inundated. I promise. <laughs> but but we are we are working this coming year. Um, I have I have an amazing uh, marketing administrator who's been who's been helping me kind of get things more organized. And the plan this coming year is to release a newsletter every time a new podcast episode comes out, so that people are aware of that. So um, we we do have we are working on getting that more formalized. But yes. I do have a newsletter. <laughs> okay, great. I'm I'm definitely signing up. Um, okay, thank you so so much for coming on. Um, I'm just going to quickly come onto video to say goodbye to you. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, 
um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Music